Well, thank you very much for um, having me, and thank you very much for the International Center for Jefferson Studies for not only having me as a, for a second time as a fellow, uh, but also for um, launching um, my book here. And the um, other um, institution which is um, sponsoring this launch is the Benjamin Franklin House in, um, in London, which is, funnily enough, the only house that still exists in which Benjamin Franklin has lived. And they have uh, just launched uh, for the second time a literary prize, and they asked me to um, just make it a little bit public here. So this is the um, it's a literary prize uh, for young and professional writers. There are some flyers on the uh, counter of the library. So if you are interested, pick up a um, flyer. But I'm here to talk about um, my book, The Brother Gardeners. Um, and The Brother Gardeners is really about the British obsession with gardens. So I thought I'm going to start telling you a little bit. You are sitting very close. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, so the book is about the British obsession with gardens. So I thought I'm going to tell you a little bit about how the, this obsession is manifested today. Because right now, in this particular moment, uh, in England, in the um, garden of the Royal Horticultural Society, uh, Wisley, there are dozens of tomato plants which are listening to tape voices through headphones which are clamped on their flower pots. They are part of a trial or a plant competition, or a competition really, run by the um, Royal Horticultural Society. On the 1st of April, the Royal Horticultural Society invited the public to audition for the nation's most plant-friendly voice. <laughs> Forty-five contestants came and recited poetry, read Shakespeare and generally just talked to the plants. Uh, the judges then whittled down this list to ten, which are the tape voices uh, the plants are listening to at the moment. Um, at the end of this trial, <laughs> uh -uh. I knew he was trouble when he said that. <laughs> at the end of this trial, which will be in mid-June, the um, plants will be measured and the voice which has produced the most flourishing specimen will be announced the voice of Wisley. Now, since this was announced on the 1st of April, I thought this is in April some Fool's Day joke, but no, I should have known better, uh, because, <laughs> because I should have known better, because for the last 13 years since I arrived from Germany to Britain, I've basically been amazed about the British obsession with gardens. I've been amazed how many people, young and old, all think that a day digging in the flower bed is really great entertainment. Um, I'm still amazed how many evenings I spend with my English friends talking about the horticultural successes and failures of their vegetable plots and flower gardens, while all my German friends think uh, it's rather odd that I write about gardens. So the English are really a nation of gardeners, and the evidence is everywhere. So, for example, they spent last year almost $6 billion on their gardens, which is almost as much as they spent last year on their military operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. 
uh, on this tiny island, there are something like 4,000 private gardens open to the public. But it was only when I interviewed the director of a garden crime prevention company <laughs> that I realized how bad this infatuation is. And I'm going to read to you what he wrote, because I can't quite summarize it as beautifully, because he told me that they were co his company was currently looking to implement a variation on the latest anti-terrorism te technology in an effort to reduce garden crime. So I thought just so that you can understand how a German can become obsessed with the English obsession, I'm going to uh, show you a couple of slides um, to uh, explain this. Does this work? Nope. There you go. So this is a garden um, which is um, in the street where my best German friend lives. Another garden there. Now she refused. Um, I was not allowed to take a picture of her garden because she knew I'm going to show her at a talk. Now this is the garden of my best British friend. She was rather delighted to... Um... Can you switch off? <laughs> Uh, she was rather delighted to give me a picture because um, her garden looks so beautiful. And just one more picture from uh, the same street where my um, German friend lives, and she never told me this. Um, this is really how English uh, the German garden gets. So I set out um, to understand why the English are so crazy about gardens. And what I found was an amazing story of friendship, of an obsession, of science, of the empire, and of competition. It was a story in which America really plays a very important role. And it's the story of a network of men who together turned the British into a nation of amateur gardeners. And it's the story of Peter Collinson, who was a London cloth merchant, John Bartram, an American farmer who just lived outside Philadelphia. Oh, that was... Hold on, let's go back. There we go. Uh, Carl Linnaeus, a Swedish uh, botanist. His pupil, Daniel Solander. Oh, God, this is very sensitive. And uh, the uh, dashing Joseph Banks, uh, who became the um, director of the Royal Society and the nominal director of Q gardens. Together, they changed the world of botany and horticulture, and together they really started a garden revolution in the 18th century. Um, and it was a garden revolution um, which started in America, or at least partly started in America. It's a garden revolution that I believe is still very much ingrained in the English landscape. <laughs> So it's a, it's, it's a garden revolution that is still um, ingrained very much in the English landscape and also in the national psyche. But let me take you to um, a cold January morning in 1734 um, to London, where the London cloth merchant Peter Collinson is rushing from his office, which is in the city of London, down to the Thames. Um, and on his way... When, when he's running down to the Thames, he can already see kind of the, the ship masts dancing over the roof masts. He can hear the cries of the stevedores who are unpacking precious goods from the ships which have arrived from across the globe. These ships bring tea and silk from China, 
They bring corn and tobacco from the North American colonies. They bring spices from the West Indies and sugar and coffee from the West Indies. But Collinson is not there to pick any such thing up. He's there to pick up the most exciting merchandise he's ever received, and that's two boxes um, filled with seeds and plants. Um, and when he opens the first box, he sees lots and lots and hundreds and hundreds of kind of seeds all neatly wrapped up in paper. And to his great astonishment, he sees two flourishing cuttings of the calmia. Now, he had never seen a calmia before. The only thing that he had seen was exactly this drawing by Mark Catesby. Um, and he'd fallen in love with it and wanted to have it in his garden. And the man who sent these plants and these seeds was John Bartram, who lived um, just outside Philadelphia. And this is a um, picture of his house as it looks today. So if you haven't been, you really um, got to go. It's a, it's a really wonderful place. The, these two boxes that Bartram sent were the first of many hundreds that would cross the ocean over the next 40 years. And it was the beginning of what I think is the most important horticultural friendship in the 18th century. Collinson set up a subscription system whereby his gardening friends would pay five guineas a year, and for that they would receive one of these big wooden boxes filled with seeds of American trees and shrubs. And slowly, over time, a rhythm developed whereby Bartram would go plant hunting in autumn, and then he would, over the winter, he would pack the boxes, then send them over to London from Philadelphia, and then they would arrive in London in spring, and Collinson would distribute the content to his gardening friends. Bartram traveled over the years. He traveled across um, all the colonies. He, um, he started off in, in Pennsylvania and then went down to Virginia, and later in his life he went um, all the way down to Georgia and Florida. And he would travel thousands and thousands of miles. And he'd write these wonderful letters to Collinson where he describes in loving detail everything that he saw on his journey so that Collinson could follow him step by step from the comfort of his armchair. And Collinson adored these vivid descriptions of the, the, this strange landscape he had never seen. Only once in a while, um, he uh, complained that Bartram had not encountered any wilder beasts than rattlesnakes. And he writes um, and asks why no panther has sprung out of a thicket or at least a bear wakened from his den. So many of these... Um, the, the trees that the English um, gardeners wanted grew actually um, just round the corner here um, in the... Uh, oh, God, this is really fast. Hold on. Oh, no. I'm really not touching it very long. Okay, I don't, really don't know what to do with this. Hold on. Now you've seen all the slides. <laughs> really boring. <laughs> um, okay, so this is the Shenandoah um, National Park, and this is where Bartram would go um, very often in autumn. And from here he would send, um, or from here he would collect uh, scarlet oak, for example, flowering dogwood, conifers such as eastern hemlock, and uh, evergreens such as the calmia and the rhododendron. 
In return, Collinson would send European plants and the latest botanical publications. But during the early years of their relationship, Collinson kind of felt rather superior to um, Bartram. And when um, Bartram had sent most of the species from Pennsylvania, he sent them to Virginia. But he, also, but he told Bartram, pray, go very clean, neat, and handsomely dressed to Virginia, and don't disgrace thyself, thyself or me. So he's kind of really looking down on him in these early years. But then, over the years, their friendship becomes, or their relationship becomes more and more equal, and they become uh, close friends. Bartram... Um, sends his observations to Collinson. Collinson reads the observations at the Royal Society, which was the most important scientific um, forum in London, or in Europe, maybe even, but definitely in England. And um, Collinson also introduced Bartram to many scientific thinkers um, in Europe, with whom Bartram then began to correspond and exchange um, information. But Collinson and Bartram don't, didn't just exchange um, plants and botanical information, they also became like a bickering old couple. And they have these wonderful petty arguments which can take years because the letters take so long to um, cross the ocean. So, for example, um, when Collinson writes that the English gardeners wanted more and different species uh, and complains that Bartram basically is not sending enough, Bartram writes back saying, I have sent seeds of almost every tree and shrub from Nova Scotia to Carolina. Do they think I can make new ones? So they have these like, wonderful um, arguments. But at the same time, um, Collinson always kind of protects Bartram's business interests. So, for example, when he finds out that one of the uh, trees that Bartram had introduced to Britain, that that tree is actually very easily propagated um, by cuttings, he promises Bartram not to tell anybody because that would be very bad for his seed business. So, Collinson and Bartram begin to transport America to England, and they are changing the English landscape. And at the same time, there's a quiet... Um, flower revolution happening in the flower beds of the English garden. And the man responsible for that is uh, Philip Miller, who was the head gardener at the Chelsea Physic Garden. I'm going to try doing this really quickly. Uh, this is an engraving of the Chelsea Physic Garden. The Chelsea Physic Garden was a um, botanic collection in London, and it still exists today. When Miller arrived in the early 1720s, he found a garden which was fairly neglected because his um, predecessors had sold off all the valuable flowers to subsidize their meager salary. But very quickly he turned it around and within a decade it became um, a thriving botanic collection again. He was one of Bartram's first uh, subscribers to Bartram's boxes. Um, but the really remarkable thing about Miller is uh, a book that he published uh, which was called The Gardener's Dictionary. He published the first edition in 1731. And it was really the first manual, comprehensive manual for practical gardening. Um, what he did is he listed every plant that was in cultivation in Britain alphabetically. And each entry gave information how to nurture, how to cultivate, and how to propagate this plant. Now, that doesn't sound very revolutionary to us, because that's basically how every plant dictionary works today. But it was the first of its kind. Um, it was the first 
horticultural um, publication that was structured like this. It was the first uh, horticultural publication which was entirely based on scientific observations. So other contemporary um, uh, publications, for example, would just repeat plant law and myth. So, for example, other publications would say, you can turn your lemons red if you graft them on mulberry trees, for example. So Miller got rid of all that. And um, with this, he gave the English gardeners um, professional knowledge. So for the first time, the amateur gardener had the tools of the profession. And really, with this, Miller laid the foundation of modern horticulture and it is the kind of mother of all plant dictionaries um, today. But Miller didn't just work at the Chelsea Physic Garden and he didn't just wrote this book. He also, together with Collinson, advised um, wealthy landowners and how to lay out their gardens and how to cultivate um, Bartram's trees and uh, shrubs. And one of their friends and clients was a man called Lord Petre, who, is, um, who had a big estate in um, Essex called Thorndon. And he's one of those kind of forgotten figures in garden history, but his contemporaries thought he was the most innovative gardener of his age. And he was one of Bartram's subscribers, but he didn't just order one box, he ordered dozens and dozens. And he had, he's actually the one who called them the brother gardeners, which is where the title um, from my book comes from. And he had, at some stage, he had 200,000 foreign plants growing in his greenhouses and in his parkland. What Petra, um, together with Miller and uh, Collinson, did is that they actually um, together dismantled the ideas um, that underpinned the garden of the um, late 17th century and early 19th century. And uh, this is a, an engraving of a garden, a very typical garden of the early 18th century. And as you can see, it's a garden which is very much ruled by straight lines and geometry. You see topiary, you see straight paths, you see how the hedges are literally kind of clipped into green walls. Um, so this is a garden where no flower head, no branch is allowed to grow unruly. And if you have a look at... I don't know if you can see that from the back. This is a plan of Thorndon um, from the early 1730s. And it's a garden which is still partly formal, but um, you can see kind of here and here um, how it's slowly loosening up, how, how the kind of corset which gardeners had imposed on the garden before is slowly um, opening up. And this is really the beginning of the English landscape garden. And what they do is they use Bartram's American species um, to create the variety which formerly were created by pruning shears. So they're using the American trees and shrubs to create columns, cones, and spheres um, without the need of pruning shears. What they do is they use the different hues of leaves, for example, as Miller says, as the lights and shades of pictures. They use the different barks, like white, smooth, peeling, grooved, kind of contrasting them against each other. Um, and they're using trees, as Collinson says, as living pencils. So they're literally painting with these new trees. So it's not ornamental pateres, but it's the, the, the plants themselves bring variety to the garden. And if you think, for example, um, that before Bartram sent his boxes, 
autumn was a fairly lacklustrous affair in the English garden. It was, you know, it's a kind of play of muted browns and yellows. But suddenly, the English gardener could set, say, for example, the yellow of tulip poplar against the red of the maple or um, the kind of aubergine purple of sweet gum. So there was suddenly color in the garden at all times of the year. They adored English uh, American um, conifers and evergreens uh, because Britain only had four native evergreens, Scots pine, hue, box, and holly. Um, Bartram introduced, for example, witch hazel. So suddenly you had color in the garden in the winter. So for the first time, the English gardener had choice um, all year round, and that was entirely due to the American plants which had arrived. Now, this vast choice also brought some problems because a new American tree could arrive in London, in Edinburgh, and, say, in Paris, and in all three places receive a different name. Now, that was a bit upsetting for the gardeners because they had spent a lot of money on these seeds, and then they nurture them for like two or three years, and then they suddenly realize that they already have that tree in their garden. It just had a different name. The man who tried to um, bring order to this chaos was the Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus. Now, Carl Linnaeus um, was, let's say, rather arrogant. I mean, he called himself um, modestly the prince of botanists. Uh, he was ambitious, but he was also a genius botanist. And, um, but he liked to show off, and in particular, he liked to show off in his... Uh, Lapland costume, which he's wearing here in this painting. Um, he actually wore it to court his wife, which seemed to have worked perfectly, but also to impress the botanists in the Netherlands. In 1736, he arrived in London, and he wanted to meet all the important botanists and gardeners. And the first person he actually goes to is Peter Collinson, and then he goes and meets Philip Miller. And what he wants to do is he wants to convince them to use his new classification system, uh, which is very straightforward and simple, and everybody who can count can master it. It's the so-called sexual system because it's based on the reproduction organs of a plant. And what he did is he divided the world of flowering plants into 23 classes according to the number of the male organs, the stamens, which he called husbands. He then further subdivided this by the number of the pistols, the female organs, which he called wives. Um, unsurprisingly, the English were rather shocked by the indecency of the system, and Collinson uh, wrote to Bartram, uh, Collinson wrote to Bartram that it tends but to embarrass and perplex the study of botany. So many botanists were rather scandalized to learn that um, flowers were making love in the um, flower head, which was not helped by the fact that Linnaeus called the flower head the bridal bed. <laughs> Nor did it help, and I'm going to just read you a few of um, Linnaeus's um, examples, that, for example, um, there were six husbands in the lily's flower head, Tulip poplars enjoyed 20 males or more in the same marriage, and uh, ash trees, live, um, the husbands, lived with wives and concubines. So suddenly the whole plant world seemed to be involved in this horticultural orgy. So Linnaeus failed to convince the English to use it. The Americans rather liked it. Uh, one botanist actually said uh, that the sexual system was too smutty for British ears. <laughs> 
The English were equally reluctant to accept his naming system, um, which he introduced in 1753 and which to the day is the international standard of plant names. Until then, plant names could be rather long and unwieldy because they had to include the description of a plant. And I'm just going to show you one example. So today's Calmia angustifolia was um, called like this. I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this in Latin, but I'm going to tell you what it means in English. It means the evergreen dwarf laurel with oblong narrow leaves growing in bunches which are placed opposite. Now that's a bit of a mouthful um, as a plant name. So like his sexual system, Linnaeus came up with something very straightforward and easy. He gave every, na every plant a two-word name, almost like a first name and a surname. So, for example, Magnolia grandiflora. Magnolia, the name of the genus, is like the surname, and grandiflora signifies the species. It's almost like the Christian name. Now, this new naming system gave Linnaeus also the power to confer immortality on his fellow botanists by naming plants after them. So, for example, the Calmia was named after his pupil Per Kalm, the Radbeckia named after his teacher Olaf Radbeck. But because Linnaeus was not just a nice person and there are not just pretty plants around, he could also use it in revenge. Because weeds also needed names. Um, so, for example, one of his enemies, a man called Johann Georg Siegesbeck, uh, who, was, uh, who worked in the Botanic Garden in St. Petersburg, he um, had very publicly criticized the sexual system. And that poor man is uh, today remembered by the Siegesbeckia, which is a stinking weed that thrives in wasteland. <laughs> Again, Linnaeus had problems convincing the English, so he decided to send his favorite pupil, Daniel Solander, to England. Um, and when Solander arrived, um, he had two missions. One was to um, publicize Linnaeus' sexual system in the naming system, and the other one was to learn um, about practical gardening, because by the time Solander arrived in 1760, the English were really the leading gardening nation in Europe. And what he found was, um, what he found were like lots and lots of American trees in, uh, and shrubs in the English garden. And I'm just going to run through a few. Um, let's see if it runs too quickly. Uh, just to give you an idea of what kind of trees and shrubs the English gardeners liked. Um, so, for example, they loved the calicarpa for the kind of purple berries, although they failed to um, actually make the berries grow. So... They kind of admired the, the drawing and tried and tried, and it didn't quite work. Um, the tulip poplar, Magnolia grandiflora, grandiflora, caused a bit of a horticultural sensation when it first flowered. Rubinia hispida and the southern catalpa. There are many, many more, but that just gives you an idea. So they absolutely adored flowering trees and shrubs. Even Capability Brown, the man who would become famous for creating the archetypal English landscape garden, actually grew and used a lot of American trees and shrubs in his landscape schemes. So the Solander adored the English, um, and he kind of wanted to stay a little longer. He was only meant to stay for a year. And um, Collinson adored Solander and decided to plot to... Um, um, have him stay 
for longer in London and um, organized a job for him at the new British Museum where So Lander would classify all the, new, the natural history objects. This extended stay in London caused somewhat uh, a little bit consternation in Sweden because Linnaeus had trained Solander to become his successor in the botanic garden in Uppsala, uh, an honor which he had gilded by also promising his oldest daughter to Solander. So he was uh, rather angry that his pupil didn't come back. And um, that's actually the moment where I'm feeling a little bit sorry for him because it would take almost a decade until he would hear from Solander again. So Solander was obviously a conflict avert. Uh, so he didn't write to him, like, I'm not coming home. He just kind of never said anything. And the next thing that Linnaeus heard from Solander was a letter uh, written from the Endeavour. Because Solander had embarked on the most daring voyage that the British um, planned in the 18th century. He had joined Captain Cook and Joseph Banks on the Endeavour and circumnavigated the globe. Joseph Banks was 10 years Solander's junior, and they had met in the reading room um, of the British Museum. And, and um, Banks was a very wealthy landowner, but a very passionate botanist also. So he had invited um, Solander to join him. So in August 1768, they set sail, and three months later, they arrive in Rio de Janeiro. And there they are, and they just can't wait to get off the boat to pick some of these amazing plants in South America. But there's a problem. The Portuguese um, governor thinks they're spies and doesn't allow them to uh, leave the boat. Uh, so there they are, you know, standing on the Endeavour, uh, peering through their telescope, and they're seeing these trees which are laden with exotic fruits. They're seeing bougainvilleas which are dripping with pink blossom, so close and still so far away. And Banks writes a letter to a friend, which I think kind of describes how a lot of these men feel um, about their plants. He writes that he feels, felt like a Frenchman laying swaddled in linen between two of his mistresses, both naked and using every possible means to excite desire. And so you know that that's not a, just a one example. Linnaeus expresses something very similar when he's waiting for his pupil, Per Kalm, to come back from a plant expedition in America. He writes uh, that, I long for him like a bride for one o'clock at night. So Solander and Banks kind of sail on um, to Tahiti and then to New Zealand, and then almost two years after they have left England, they arrive at a place where no white man has ever set foot, the east coast of Australia. And they just can't believe what they see. They see like towering eucalyptus trees with peeling bark. They see the Banksia, which later gets named after Joseph Banks, and the bottle brush. And actually, they are so amazed about what they see there that they call the place of their first landfall Botany Bay. When they return to England in, in July 1771, their portfolios of pressed plants is filled to the brim, and they bring back something like 30,000 dried specimens, um, 3,600 species of which 1,400 species are new to the British botanist. And they are celebrated like heroes, much more so actually than, uh, than Captain Cook. Over the next years, Banks really uses his fame to turn London into the center of botany. He becomes the 
president of the Royal Society. He becomes the nominal director of the Royal Botanic Garden in Kew. And he turns his private house in Soho Square in London into an Academy of Natural Sciences. He sends out plant collectors to send plants back to London. And, um, but at heart, he really very much remains um, a field botanist. So whenever he sees a plant that he fancies, he jumps out of his carriage and kind of plugs it. He once gets arrested as a highway man because he's found in a ditch um, stuffing his pockets with plants. He also gave his wife a piece of dry, dried moss to wear as a brooch. Um, now, he thought this was a rather gorgeous botanical specimen because it was a very rare piece of dried moss. His wife thought it was rather unsightly, and when she refused to, bin it, to pin it to her blouse, Banks called her a fool that she likes diamonds better and cannot be persuaded to wear it as a botanist's wife certainly ought to be. <laughs> Unlike Collinson, Banks didn't collect for beauty or botanical completeness. He collected plants because he believed that plants would bring economic profit to the country. And the first step in this endeavor was to turn the Royal, Garden, um, the Royal Botanic Garden at Kew into a um, kind of engine of colonial growth and into a storehouse of um, the empire. And the idea was to collect plants from across the world, send them to Kew, and then experiment with them cultivate them, and then send them to other uh, colonies where they might be uh, lucrative. So it was his idea, for example, to send tea, Chinese uh, tea plants from China to India uh, in order to break the Chinese tea monopoly. It didn't work. It kind of worked 50 years later. And another of his ideas was to send, um, to transport uh, breadfruit trees from the East Indies to the West Indies, where he thought they would make good food for the slave population on the sugar plantations. So it was Banks who sent the bounty under the command of uh, Captain William Bly to the East Indies to pick up breadfruit trees. And um, as we all know, that venture didn't go quite uh, according to plan. And uh, after the infamous mutiny on the bounty, the last thing that William Bly saw of his breadfruit trees were 1,015 of them all neatly potted up in the great cabin. And this is, a, um, I think, a wonderful detail of the ship plan of the bounty. Uh, this is the uh, great cabin. And I don't know if you can see that. So every little circle is a plant pot um, for the breadfruit tree. Um, and the captain, who normally lives there, this is the captain's cabin. Um, so what Banks did is he turned the bounty into a floating garden. So this becomes like a greenhouse. Uh, he puts in skylights so that they have more light. The only cargo on the bounty was the water they needed to um, water the breadfruit trees. They actually, um, once Bly makes his way back to England, um, Banks sends him out again and it worked. And uh, the breadfruit tree is now a naturalized tree in uh, the West Indies. At the same time, um, more and more plants were flooding into, um, from the empire, were flooding into Britain. Many of our most popular garden plants arrived in the 18th century. Something like 6,000 species arrived. And 
for example, dahlias from Mexico, fuchsia from South America, hosta from Japan, and the first Asian magnolias and hydrangea all arrived um, in the 18th century. By the end of the 18th century, Bartram's American trees and shrubs um, had become so common that their prices had plummeted and you could buy them in any of the um, nurseries across the country, if it's in Edinburgh or if it's in Cornwall. So, ironically, as America declared independence, the English garden was actually filled with the towering trees and flowering shrubs of her former colonies. And as the English garden became famous and fashionable and um, spread across Europe and European garden owners sent their gardeners to England to learn how to create an English garden. These gardens, which kind of spread out across Europe, were actually filled with American species, um, which I think is extraordinary, and which um, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson also thought, um, because they went on a garden tour uh, to Britain in 1786 and saw these gardens and saw that they were filled with American trees and shrubs. And Jefferson actually, I mean, this is the, the, both of them kind of appreciate the native American species. And Jefferson actually says that it would be very easy to create these kind of gardens in America from their own forest because, and that's what he says, we have only to cut out the superabundant plants. So at the same time, the English now are really in a complete garden frenzy. And as the new century dawned, uh, the ownership of a garden in England really became the prerequisite um, of happiness, maybe even of Englishness. And um, I'm going to finish this with a slide which I think summarizes very nicely um, how crazy they went. Oh, that's really unfair. Oh, Anna, can you get that going again? Let me see if I can get that. Oh. Too nice. You have to wait. Sorry. Oh, <gasps> uh, no, I can't get it going. Anyway, it is a plan. Can you? It's the last. So it's basically is the is the uh, is the 18th century satire. Um, yeah, there you can see it. Uh, and it's a huge wig, and on top of the wig you can see like a little gardener, uh, a temple. Uh, a little garden gate, and uh, I found a wonderful uh, diary entry from exactly the same time, from uh, the 1770s, where one onlooker um, at a dinner party observed the following. Eleven damsels which had amongst them on their heads an acre and a half of shrubbery, besides slopes, grass plots, tulip beds, clumps of peonies, kitchen gardens, and greenhouses. Thank you. There's actually also a cartoon. These are known as the macaroni cartoons of the Battle of Bunker Hill being fought in the hairstyle of uh, yeah. one of the people of the period. Uh, I think we've got some time for some questions, and there's going to be a book signing afterwards. Uh, yes. With all this importation of plants, was there any that just Well, I, so you're asking about invasive species. Yeah. Well, I can... To my knowledge, 
There's not a single plant that Bartram introduced that has become an invasive species. But uh, the other way around, it definitely um, did go wrong. I mean, there are lots of invasive species which have arrived um, in the 18th and 19th century in Britain. Um, there, you know, like 19th century, I think, was like Japanese knotweed and certain types of rhododendrons, but none of the American rhododendrons. Bartram actually writes to Collinson, and I can't recall exactly which plant it is, that Collinson had sent him a um, flower from Collinson's garden, which had gone completely mad in Bartram's garden, where he was really complaining, saying, like, it's escaped my garden, it's gone into my fields, I don't know what to do with it. And Collinson was like, it's a really neat little plant in my garden. So there are certainly, um, there is that problem, but they are far too curious and uh, keen to have uh, new plants to be really worried about it. Uh, I was just wondering, by the time the capability of Brown came on the scene, uh, were they still importing plants from the United States or were they using the indigenous they already had? No, they were, um, Cap Capability Brown is using American um, trees. I mean, he is using British also, but he's using, um, the, by, so he's like really big in the 1750s and 60s. Um, Bartram sends his first book in the box in, the seven, in 1734. Um, so by then, the American species have become very, very common, and um, there are some uh, nursery bills um, where, which prove that Capability Brown did buy quite a lot of American species. Oh, no, he bought no, not from America anymore. They basic, I mean, he never was a customer of um, Bartram's. By then, you could buy them in, um, in, the, in the nurseries. I mean, just to give you an idea, so at the beginning of the, of the 18th century, there were 50 nurseries across the whole of Britain. And by the end of the 18th century, there were 200 uh, in London alone. So, uh, you know, things had changed dramatically uh, in the 18th century. Well, I'm, I didn't really look at that because I looked at the, um, at the English garden, so that's for the next book to look at. But um, my guess was, I mean, basically, until, except of a few, you know, a few exceptions, like Bartram and Jefferson and Washington, for example, American, um, American gardeners do like their European plants for a very, very long time. It, it takes a while for them to actually... You know, bring the native species into their garden. So, and I assume because there's, if you look, if I compare it to England, in England, the, basically the formal, the, the, the informal garden begins um, also at a, at a time when the, um, when more and more of the, common, uh, of the commons get enclosed. So more and more of the kind of wild countryside disappears. That's the moment when gardeners invite the wilderness back into their gardens, when you have ha-has, for example. Um, and I feel that in America, and I might be wrong, that because the wilderness was so, you know, so much stronger and so, you know, so much kind of there in their face, that actually they wanted to have these kind of sanctuaries away from the wilderness, kind of a safe haven, and, and it's only later when the wilderness kind of removes that they can, you know, let down their garden walls and fences. But that's a guess at the moment. Well, I don't know if you're aware, but The Economist magazine a few years ago did a survey of the most popular books in Britain and America. 
And in the United States, it was self-help therapy books. And in Britain, it was gardening books. And the economists suggested that maybe the two are related. We should stop worrying about ourselves and go out into the uh, garden. Now, Jefferson, of course, thought that almost the only good thing about the British were their gardens, otherwise he was very dismissive. Yeah. Uh, but this was a tremendous presentation. I particularly congratulate you, having worked as an independent scholar without uh, institutional support for this, and done work of an extremely high caliber and really good cultural Thank history you. that's path-breaking. Thank you. Thank you.